musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I figure that it's about time for you and me to get back into our Occupy mindsets. It was just four years ago that I posted my podcast number 292, which I titled Makana the Mighty. And if you haven't already listened to that program, uh, well, you may find it interesting to do so now. You see, back then we were less than 100 days into the Occupy Wall Street phase of the Occupy movement. And if my mentioning of the Occupy movement has caused you to groan, well, then you might as well just turn off your MP3 player right now because uh, it is the spirit of the 60s and the spirit of Occupy that I want to fire up in you once again. Now, if you are only a casual observer and not a participant in the Occupy movement, you most likely think that it was much ado about nothing. However, if that's what you think, then you have a lot of catching up to do. Because Occupy Wall Street was only the first phase, phase one tactic, of the overarching Occupy movement, which is very much alive and well under a wide number of names. And uh, this current stage of the Occupy movement uh, could be called building national consensus. For example, have you noticed that ever since the demonstrators in Zuccotti Park began the 99% versus 1% discussion, Well, since then, income inequality has remained a major topic in the mass media. But the spirit of the Occupy movement began long before the occupation of Zuccotti Park in New York City. For us uh, dusty old farts, it began much further back, even before we were born, in fact, with the trade union movements in the early 20th century. However, since I'm not quite that old, for me, the uh, rabble-rousing, let's-shake-things-up spirit Well, that came to life with a vengeance during the 60s. Now today, for most people under 40, the 60s are thought of more or less as one long psychedelic trip, which was accompanied by a great soundtrack. In fact, uh, it's hard for many people to realize that the music of that era was the main happy thing taking place, because for many of us it was a hellish time. In my own case, I was caught between two worlds, having graduated as an electrical engineer at a small Catholic university in 1964, I missed the student protest movement. In fact, in the Midwest part of the country, large student protests hadn't yet begun to appear. The seeds had been planted, of course, in June of 1962, when the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, produced what is now called the Port Huron Statement. But it was in the summer of 1965, when I was working as a stuntman in the movie Hawaii, that I first learned about a new war gearing up in a place called Vietnam. In fact, I can still remember sitting in Mama San's cafe on the Alawai Canal and uh, talking with a guy who had just returned from Saigon with all kinds of rumors about a growing war. And he was saying that young guys like me would probably wind up in it before we knew what hit us. To be honest, uh, at the time I didn't think there was much of a chance in hell that I would ever become involved in a war in Vietnam. In fact, I wasn't even very sure where Vietnam was. After all, I knew that in a few weeks I would be back in Houston, Texas, returning to law school, which brought with it a very precious deferment from the military draft. However, almost uh, exactly three years later to the day, 
I found myself off the coast of Vietnam, helping the U.S. Navy blow that lovely country to pieces with all of the firepower that a destroyer had at its command. So, for the most part, the 60s don't hold any peace and love memories for me. Quite frankly, I would just as soon not think about those times at all. In the 60s, there was a lot more going on than what we like to recall today. In a sense, the uh, U.S. was at war with itself. And for the most part, it was young people who were subject to the brunt of the government's insane desire to continually be involved in one or more wars. Not unlike the times that we are in yet today. So has anything changed? Well, let's listen first to a few of the movers and shakers from those times as they reflect back on how they experienced the 60s. And don't worry, uh, this is going to be much more than just another history lesson. By the end of this podcast, you will find out that not only were the 60s deep and dark, the wheels that began turning back then, both on the part of the government and on the part of the people, have continued to turn, and that you may yet have a role to play in what we all hope is going to be the closing chapters of this long struggle that we the people have been undertaking to break free of the powerful elite who we have allowed to control us in so many unseen ways. I'm going to begin with a clip from a talk that Dr. Timothy Leary gave in St. Petersburg, Florida on an October evening in 1990. And listen as he speaks about the new spirit that had sprung up during the 60s. You know, it's interesting about the 60s revolution, cultural revolution, which then moved to Europe in the 70s when Franco died and when uh, Salazar, was it, in Portugal died, one after one as these tight, old, geriatric, Cold War dictatorships loosened up, up popped this new spirit. But what was it? It wasn't anti-communist. It wasn't communist. What was it? How could you describe it? You know, the, the Chinese situation. How could, what did they want? Uh, the, the Chinese dictators, well, they want American capitalism, the running dogs of Wall Street. That's what they want. Well, bullshit. I mean, you know, you know, that's not right. What those students wanted was they wanted to change their own major. I was talking to some leftists, some liberals at the L.A. Weekly, you know, real liberals, L.A. Weekly. Jay Lemser, Jay said, well, what those Chinese students want, after all, they just want Cadillacs. Well, goddamn right, Jay. They want Cadillacs, uh, they want VWs, they want surfboards, they want uh, uh, soap, they want blue jeans, they want, I mean, they want the fucking option to decide how to live their life. They want to select their majors. That's what the, the whole movement of, of, of post-industrial information age, the movement of individualism is not to leave communism, go to capitalism, go back to fundamentalist Islamic Christianity. People want to have the choice, the option of deciding how to live their lives. In China, they wanted to be able to, to date a girl in public. When I say that this political movement, <laughs> the aim of which is to choose your major, has never happened in human history before, now let me demonstrate or try to prove to you why I feel that way. The notion of thinking for yourself, making your own life decisions, navigating your own career throughout your life, of choosing your own life, of choosing how you want to dress, of choosing where you want to live. Now, now really, that's pretty recent, as is the notion of, of progress, for that matter, revolution. Throughout most of human history, it, the notion of coming for people and say, I want to encourage you young people to think for yourself, you know, was simply out of the question. In a hunter-gatherer society, if I were to go to a New Guinea tribe and say, Tribal elders gather the young people here and want to 
urge them to think for themselves. They say, what do you mean, man, think for yourself? Choose your major. There's only one major, hunter or gatherer, you know. Um, uh, so I can understand that. However, in 1989, in post-industrial America, if you have 50 million Americans on a full moon loony Sunday night at Sunday school praying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want he maketh me lie down on green pastures. Well, if your Lord and God is a shepherd, I ask you, what does that make you? Bah! <laughs> I mean, everything has changed. God is no longer a big shepherd. God is no longer the Lord in heaven, uh, the ruler of all the mighty things like that. The human being is not a sheep. The human being is not a serf. Now, the human being is a worker or a manager. And in the factory assembly line society that we've all grown up through, you're born in a hospital, you're born in a factory, you're born in a little assembly line, and then you brought home, and then uh, you go off to school, kindergarten, first grade, all the way up, and and uh, you're uh, the god of the and the prophets of the industrial mechanical age, of course, uh, engineers and uh, the good human being. The good human being in industrial society is prompt, dependable. Reliable, productive, efficient, and of course replaceable <laughs> as part of the assembly line. The average American household watches television 7.4 hours a day. That means that the average American household sits like vegetoid octopus slugs with their eyeballs sucking out all this information and the nose is pressed to an aquarium, which is called the television tube. The average American lives on the other side of the television screen in this digital, imaginary, fantastic Disneyland world. Uh, it's much more important to him or her than the, than the real world. The average American uh, is, feels closer to Bill Cosby or to um, Dan Rather or to um, Mickey Mouse than to the neighbors next door. It's awesome. It's scary. It's frightening. How real these television... Matter of fact, I've never seen George Bush. He only exists to me as a cluster of electrons on my screen. Matter of fact, uh, I know Mickey Mouse better than I do George Bush. Because everybody's catching on now to who controls the screen, controls society, who controls the screen that you look at controls your mind. The upside of that is you have individually got to control what's on the screens that you look at. Did you get that? The secret that Dr. Leary came up with over 25 years ago was that we must control our own screens. And he said that two years before the birth of the World Wide Web. Little did he know at the time that, yes, the day was rapidly approaching when we actually could control our own screens, the ones that are connected to the Internet. However, uh, as I will detail for you a little later, your ability to control your own internet screen may soon be lost if you don't take some action to retain your rights in cyberspace. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, I want to give you a little better idea of the flavor of the deep, dark 60s. Not the wonderful musical flavors of those days, but the social and political flavors. You see, while the Occupy Wall Street movement was designed to let everyone see that the U.S. has, uh, in fact, become a super police state, 
The first time that this was on display was during the 60s, when black people were savagely beaten down as they demonstrated for the right to vote and the right to be served in a restaurant, among other things. But it wasn't until the police began attacking the young white kids that mainstream America began to pay attention to what was being done in the background by their government. And the pinnacle of that expose was the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. At the time of that convention, I had only been back from the Vietnam War for about six months. I was on leave from the Navy for a week and was visiting my parents, who lived only a few miles from the convention site. I watched it all with my dad and mom, who were two wonderful American patriots. My dad, having been wounded in World War II during his time with the Navy in the South Pacific, was very proud of the fact that his oldest son had served in Vietnam. I, on the other hand, was trying to explain to my parents what a farce that war was and how the American people were being lied to. Then, on television, my mother and dad, along with my younger brother and I, watched all hell break loose when the Chicago police lost their professionalism and rioted, causing much mayhem among the young anti-war protesters. It was a very strained evening for us. Later that same night, I convinced my brother to leave the country as soon as he graduated from college so that he could avoid the draft. He left the country the following year and never returned, which caused a lot of grief for all of us. And for me, that was the 60s, the true deep dark part of the 60s. Now here is Danny Sugarman, who at the time of that notorious convention was a teenager, and he was there when it all went down. Later, uh, as you know, Danny became the manager of the Doors, and uh, as he describes the attack on the peaceful demonstrators by the Chicago police, see if it doesn't remind you of what happened four decades later during the Occupy Wall Street demonstrations. I really didn't know what was going on all around me during the 60s, but that something was going on was crystal clear. There was the establishment, also known as them, and the freaks among who I counted myself at my junior age. So I might not have known exactly what we were about, but I knew exactly what we were against. We were against them. That included my parents and teachers. It was us, and it was against them. And I knew who they were, and I knew whose side I was on. And we were wonderful, I have to admit, we really were. It was inevitable. There had to be a confrontation. There had been occasional flare-ups. Little us-against-them violent eruptions here and there. Little standoffs. We marched and we protested, and we were marvelous. We were going to win the war. They got the guns, but we got the numbers, right? Wrong. When the confrontation finally came, it was so puny, and we were so ill-equipped to deal with it in Chicago, they hit us, and they hit us hard, and they hit us, and our faith shattered under the impact. There we were with our peace symbols and our slogans and our banners and our songs and our sandals. And they came at us with their army boots and their guns and their tanks and their batons and their tear gas canisters. And they mowed us down. They hit women and they hit children and they hit men and they hit students and they hit long hairs and short hairs alike. They hit all of us. They hit anything that moved. And we did fall. And then they shot us in Chicago. They killed us where we stood. And we were shocked out of our collectiveness. No, no, I take it back. We were embarrassed out of it. The confrontation came, and in the face of it, we were wimps. When the big moment finally arrived, and there they were, and there we were, we pussied out. They walked right over us, and we let them because we couldn't fight back, because we lacked the courage and the conviction and the faith. 
There might have been more of us than them, but the enemy was stronger. The establishment said, okay, we'll make a compromise, but we'll make it on our terms. You can have your long hair and you can have your crazy clothes. You can have your marijuana cigarettes, but you get your candy asses off our streets. We'll end the war, but we'll end it in good time. But it'll be our time, not yours. Now go home. And we went back inside with our goddamn tail between our legs, and it pissed me right off. But nobody wanted any more confrontations. Everybody wanted to let their scars heal. Rest, forget the humiliation, but not Jim Morrison, not him. He'd show him. Nixon got elected, and in front of the whole world, Morrison stood up and called him a fraud. Four more years of this bullshit, he roared. How much more are you people going to take? He was pissed. He'd do something. The first night of the first Doors national tour, Jim Morrison stood up in a house full of liars and told the truth. He stood on stage, drunk and indignant, in Miami, Florida, and told us exactly what he thought of all of us. You're all a bunch of fucking idiots, he bellowed. Your faces are being shoved into the shit of the world, and you love it. You're all a bunch of fucking slaves. You must like getting pushed around. You must love it. You're all a bunch of idiots. And everyone gasped because Morrison was right and they knew it. The room was still, but Morrison raged. You didn't come here for music tonight. You didn't come here to hear some good songs, to hear some good musicians. You came here for something else. What do you want me to do? And there's always some smartass who will yell out just the wrong thing at just the right time. And this one yahoo screamed out in front of 15,000 people, show us your cock. Morrison was astonished. He blinked into the darkness. Is that what you want, he asked, implying is that all? Because, see, here's, here's the man ready to nail himself to the cross for us, ready to die for us, to wake us up, and all we want is to see the lizard kings dingle. We weren't only wimps, we were fools. We didn't deserve Jim Morrison anymore. He wasn't only ahead of his time, we weren't in step with ours anymore. To ask whether or not Jim whipped it out in Miami is irrelevant. It's also stupid. It's besides the whole point. Whatever Morrison did that night in Miami, he did for us. And he was arrested for it, and he went on trial for it. And rock and roll went on trial with him. Now they'll see. Now we'll get some results, I thought. I mean, the man can't bust our music, right? Right. That's the last thing they could touch. It was the last thing they touched, and they put their dirty, pudgy, nicotine-stained fingers all over it. Rock and roll went on trial, and nobody cared. Nobody gave a fuck. Jim Morrison and the Doors fought in court with their own money to change the morality laws and the freedom of expression laws, and nobody came. Nobody listened. It was sickening. It was pathetic. No, apathetic is what it was. As most Doors fans know, Miami was the first and last date on a tour where the rest were either canceled by city Officials are aborted. Each of the doors escape, flying to a different island in the Bahamas. Then one at a time, they return back to Los Angeles to estimate the damage, to try and sort out what had happened and plot out their next move. Everyone was still having trouble that this had really happened in America. When Morrison came back, he found a warrant issued for his arrest waiting on his desk. He announced he was going to turn himself into the FBI, an act I considered nothing short of heroic. We all braced for the after effects, still having difficulty this was really happening here. Jim hadn't wanted to really tour in the first place. Had this been his way of sabotaging the whole thing? Had his effort worked too well or had it backfired? Had he let things finally and perhaps irrevocably get out of control? The night of the day that Jim surrendered, I was back at our family house in Westchester, sitting at the dinner table. At dinner, I announced to the gathering how Jim had turned himself in. 
For what? What'd the freak do this time, my stepfather demanded, since he didn't know how to ask anything nicely. I took a deep breath and with pride, to the best of my 14-year-old ability, recited the charges I only vaguely understood. The misdemeanors were public drunkenness, public profanity, and inciting a riot, I said. And the felonies were lewd and lascivious behavior and simulating masturbation and oral copulation. Those were the felonies. The misdemeanors I sort of grasped, but the felonies really had me quite baffled. I thought simulation meant like a drawing or a cartoon. And I thought oral copulation meant saying fuck, oral meaning mouth and vocal and all. Not in front of the girls, my stepfather yelled, whacking the table, doing the old silverware jump again. He meant his daughters. I didn't know that. Yeah, the girls in front of the boys, the whole audience, the cops too, I said. Young man, you have one filthy mouth and you will leave this table pronto. No, I tried to explain. I didn't say anything. Jim said it. I wasn't even there. As the trial began and the months dragged on, you could see the change in Morrison physically as the realization dawned on him that we weren't simply worth the trouble anymore. We weren't worth the effort or the price. Morrison grew a beard. He put on weight and the leather pants didn't go back in a closet. They went into the trash this time. Fuck you, he said. You don't deserve the effort. He gave up. He gave up on you and he gave up on me. But most frighteningly of all, he gave up on himself. And I could do nothing but watch and try and stay out of the way. And, yes, there is not a doubt in my mind about the fact that it was the United States government that was actually responsible for the destruction and eventual death of Jim Morrison. He had become such an idol for young people who just wanted to say fuck you to the system that they had to get him out of the way just like they have done recently with Ross Ulbrich of Silk Road. And if you think that this kind of thing isn't still happening, then stay tuned, because right now, today, at this very moment, there are people in our governments who are actively working to destroy the lives of inspirational young people. And this time, it's about to have a direct effect on you, unless you decide to stand up and be counted. But I'll get to that in just a bit. First, uh, let me back up here and point out another lesson that was learned during the 60s, and it is one that has benefited us yet today. As you heard Danny Sugarman say just now, the demonstrators were not prepared for the violent military-style police attacks that took place. Now fast forward to the violent confrontations with police that happened during the early days of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Once again, the demonstrators folded up their tents and seemed to go home. But this time, it was just as had been planned. You see, the purpose of Phase 1 of the larger movement, the short-lived Occupy Wall Street phase, was to show to the world, and more importantly to the citizens of the United States, that they are actually living in a militarized police super-surveillance state, an electronic gulag, in other words. The plan was never to permanently continue to occupy public spaces, The purpose was to put on display the fact that our constitutional right of peaceable assembly and free speech has been taken from us. And even the blindest among us has seen that now. Yet, I still hear some disgruntled people saying that the occupiers lost their chance to begin the next American revolution. How wrong they are, because that revolution is now fully underway. However, it isn't a violent armed revolution, and that was another of the big lessons that we learned in the 60s. Numbers don't matter when the other side has so much firepower. 
I remember sitting around a campfire in the Oregon woods one night long ago, and someone asked Ken Kesey, who was there with us, what was the biggest thing that he had learned from the 60s. And without any hesitation, he said, never pick an argument with a dumb guy who is carrying a gun. (laughs) And uh, that is why phase one of the Occupy movement was designed primarily to expose the truth of our current political situation here in the States, but not to confront it with violence. Now, I want you to listen to another person who was in Chicago during those fateful days in 1968. Actually, uh, he was one of the leaders of the students who were demonstrating there. His name is Abby Hoffman, and here he is in 1986, talking about other aspects of student activism during the 60s, while also encouraging the students in the audience there at Kent State, where he was speaking, to follow the example of those who had recently come before them. I started to examine the rising tide of student activism because I knew things were changing. Already in the two and a half years preceding that, 8,000 students had been arrested on campuses protesting apartheid in South Africa. You have to know that that happened because the media isn't going to tell you. Shantytowns have been constructed on over 100 universities and 165 have pulled out $6 billion joining the divestment movement. So I said, I'll bet these activist students, a minority to be sure, are going to get involved in Central America, but there's no draft. So how are they going to do it? They're going to do it when the CIA comes on campus to recruit, because that is the war of Central America in the flesh. And now they're marching, 750 students at Louisiana State University. Did you believe it? Blocking the CIA, 100 in Bowdoin College. University of Mass using necessity defense, going on trial. Anti-apartheid movement still there. University of Texas, 16 students didn't do so good last week. Necessity defense, got three to six months in prison. They call for advice, dear Abby, what should we do? I give them proud to be called. I mean, there weren't many people that we could use in the 60s. We couldn't go there, you know. The witch hunts of the 50s, World War II, we would have got, had to go back to the trade union movement in the 30s. It was lost to us. We had the feeling that it was all new. Though you get the names mixed up, and you think it was all sex, rocks, and rock and roll, you know that something political happened back then. There is the legacy that you can go out and fight City Hall, and you can win. There's about 3,000 students out there right now in America that see themselves as organizers first and students second. They see that is their education. That is part of what they want to do in life. They want to stop apartheid in South Africa. They want to stop the war in Central America. They want to make this country so that it's a country that attends to the problems of the least fortunate, not the most fortunate in the country. And I look at my kid, 16 years old. At 13, he brought down a curfew band, Seattle. Got rock and roll into the park at 14. Now, he works on draft resistance. Came, chained himself to a fence, just like Papa. When I die, he'll inherit the business. (laughs) I said to him, uh, why are you doing all this? He says, I don't know. We ain't going to win. 
polar ice cap's going to melt, the tropical forest is going to go away, take away our oxygen, AIDS is going to take out half the population, nuclear bombs are going to go off within seven and a half years. I can prove it to you on my computer. So, wow, would you learn how to talk like that? He says, that's just the way it is. That's reality. You're quaint, Daddy. You're a romantic dreamer, something from the past. But he is expressing a certain kind of nihilism that American youth reflect in their music, in their language, the way they dress, in their thoughts, and in their nightmares, certainly. Unattached to the planet, unattached to the past, the present, and especially the future. That's why I say there's a possibility if you don't go out and make the social changes that were begun in the 60s and weren't finished in the 60s, your nightmares might come true and you will be the last generation that you see in your dreams at night. Change doesn't come about through conformists. People take risks like those four students in 1970 that lost their lives right here on this campus because they didn't believe that the National Guard had a right to come on and shoot at students. They didn't believe that the U.S. government had a right to lie to its people and to send young people 10,000 miles off to battles. Nothing's changed. Same decisions are there. I urge you to think about this. We need young people in the front because young people have creativity, personal computers, energy. They understand MTV. You take somebody my age. I'm 50. I'll be 51 next year. I mean, God, is he old? Older than my father, I heard people say. They tell you you get wise when you get old. You know what you get? You get hemorrhoids. You don't get these ideas and thoughts when you're middle-aged. It's when you're young that you get your ideas that you can change things. You're plugged into the cultural communications. You have that one ingredient that is necessary for social change that you can't have at middle age or older. Young people are impatient. They want it now. You need that certain element. So I urge you to think about this. We didn't invent the cry of peace and freedom back then. We didn't write its final chapter. Seize this moment. Go out and make tomorrow better than today. I urge you to just say no. Just say no to dorks like Bork who want to bring us back to the 19th century. Just say no to student apathy. Just say no to apartheid in South Africa. Just say no to war in Central America. Say no to contrade. Just say no. Just say no to lying presidents like Ronald Reagan. And just say no when they ask you to piss in the vial. And don't drop your zipper for the gipper.
right on. Test the government, not the people. That's what democracy is about. And for what it's worth, never for a minute have I believed that Abby committed suicide. In my opinion, that was another black ops hit by the people deep inside the national security state. The people who see to it that role models like Morrison, Hoffman, Hendricks, Joplin, and Marley don't live long enough to lead a powerful youth movement. But I've always loved listening to Abby Hoffman's speeches because, well, he usually got directly to the point I was thinking about, but didn't believe anyone would ever say in public. Things like, We will not let them separate our culture from our politics. We are a people. We are all together. We are all under attack. America has decided to devour its youth. We will resist. We will not participate in America's children for breakfast program. Fuck them. Fuck them. <laughs> I can't express it any better myself. Unfortunately, just saying fuck them isn't going to change anything. There's also some heavy lifting that we are all going to have to do as well. You see, like many others, I was sucked into believing that we actually had accomplished something significant by eliminating the military draft. And until a few years ago, I was still proud about the fact that my two sons weren't forced into the armed services as I was. But I was a fool. Slowly, the old documents are being declassified, and now we are learning about the nefarious reasoning that went into the decision to eliminate the draft. You see, this took place in the early 1970s, and at that time, our citizen army had just about had enough. I was still in the Navy Reserves at the time and would have to march in uniform in patriotic military parades from time to time. But immediately afterwards, I would join many of my compatriots at an anti-war demonstration. There was much dissension within the ranks, and the top brass quickly realized that having a well-educated citizen army could spell disaster if unpopular wars were continually engaged in. So the draft was replaced with today's all-volunteer force, which has resulted in a very different vibe in the armed services than was there when the majority of us were only civilian temps, and we knew that soon we would be out of the service and could raise all the hell that we wanted about what was actually taking place in Vietnam. It's much more difficult today for a service woman or man to get the truth out to the public because their retirement pensions and medical benefits are at stake. Essentially, today's service woman or service man is being financially blackmailed into not speaking up. But let's move out of the 60s now and return to the debate that took place in St. Petersburg, Florida, late in October of 1990, from which we have already heard a little bit from Timothy Leary. At that point in time, Dr. Timothy Leary was traveling around the country and debating various and sundry right-wing conservatives on the proposition that all drugs should be legal. In the part of that debate that I'm going to play for you right now, I'm only going to include a tiny portion of Leary's antagonist's speech, because for the most part, it sounds like the soundtrack from that old propaganda film, Reefer Madness. But as you listen to Dr. Leary, try to keep in mind the fact that this war on drugs you keep hearing about is a real war. And the people on the other side from you and me take those words at face value. They see it as a war, and they see you and me as the enemy. There's no nuance in their world. And I'm sure that the DEA officials who are listening to this podcast right now will agree with that. 
For them, there is only one fact, and that is that all people who use drugs are bad, and their dealers need to be put away forever, as we will learn in this clip. So, now let's join Dr. Leary as he exposes the dark underbelly of the war on drugs. Chris, there's not much logic when you have a debate on decriminalization of drugs. It's a, it's a topic that's so hot. It's a topic that uh, gets involved with so many deep issues. That, uh, And I respect Curtis. Uh, he said, yes, it's true that if we, if we uh, legalize uh, drugs and put them in the control of the government, then we'll cut down the crime. Uh, it will... Uh, uh, it will eliminate the robberies. It will cut down the violence. It will release an enormous amount of money for education and for, um, for uh, rehabilitation. But you're assuming, Curtis, that um, if we decriminalize... By the way, basically, the government... The government in Washington, D.C. has no business telling an adult American what to do with her body or her mind. I am pro-choice. Pro-choice for adults on the issues of uh, who you have, uh, who you make love with, uh, what methods of birth control you do or do not use. This is your business if you're an adult. Or how you choose to change your brain or alter consciousness is your business. Now, if you get out of line and uh, start causing uh, trouble in the streets, you should be busted. If you disturb others uh, behaviorally, you should be busted. But for uh, the adult American in the privacy of your own home or in quiet to... Uh, decide who's going to control your body and uh, your reproductive patterns and your brain is certainly the first frontier of American freedom. Now that does leave the problem that Curtis brought up of young people. Certainly all of us agree that, that people that are minors, juveniles, pre-adults should, should not be allowed to have access to drugs or booze. Or uh, driver's car keys. I mean, just common sense. Or chainsaws. I mean, just obvious. Uh. <laughs> but you can't control. Uh, you know, you can't use the use the FBI and the, and the National Guard and surround every uh, kindergarten with uh, FBI agents to to stop. Um, and kids using that, and I agree with Curtis, it's got to come from the home, from the neighborhood, from the extended family, from the schools. And uh, above all, uh, you've got to have accurate, accurate information about drugs. Now, to the right wing, to the people that are against sex or against abortion, uh, who are against, we're going to censor uh, arts for sexual purposes, they're the same groups that are against uh, your right as an adult to, uh, to change your mind with drugs. The same group, they want to control, control, control the individual. So, they are the ones that have created this terrible atmosphere of confusion and crime. Because they lie. Now, I'm sure you've come to the conclusion I have that almost everything you hear about drugs is a lie. Why? Well, for number one, you're talking about a wide, wide range of drugs. Now, I'm sorry to tell any conservative in this audience that uh, the facts of nature, and by the way, uh, you should listen to this too, Curtis. People don't take drugs because they just want to have a good time on Friday night or because they're trying to... No, that's, good. that's all right. 
The reason why people take psychoactive drugs is because there is in the human brain a series of receptor sites that uh, evolution over billions of years has created our model of human species with this, um, this receptive need for psychoactive neurotransmitters. Now, I, I, it's not my fault. I'll talk to Dr. Czar, drug czar, Bennett. I didn't invent the receptor sites, nor did I arrange for this extraordinary, extraordinary symbiosis that as we've evolved as mammals, uh, botanical plants have continued to evolve. So at the present time, there are hundreds of plant products that are designed to trigger off, open up, activate different circuits of your brain. Uh, so, just as the rigid moralist will tell you, you have no right to enjoy sexuality. There's only one reason why you have sex organs, and that is to breed, 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 breed for the Pope and for the King. And the, uh, the same. Uh, you have no right to uh, to uh, exercise your your need to uh, change consciousness. Now, nobody can tell anyone else. To take drugs or not take drugs. You know, I don't. Personally, I don't. I'm not trying to advocate drugs. I advocate something more more subversive than that. My task tonight, as it has been for 40 years, is to empower you and encourage you every possible. T F Y Q A. Think for yourself and question authority. I don't even like to talk about drugs these days because uh, I'm, I'm so convinced that uh, you've you got to do it yourself. But I will tell you, I think it's uh, my duty to tell you that I'm a trained psychologist and I have been studying the human mind for over 40 years and uh, therefore as a, a tool for expanding consciousness and to uh, uh, broaden my perceptions and to uh, allow me to navigate around my own mind, I have found these ancient vegetable botanical plant products extremely useful. I consider it my almost my religious duty where the Catholics have to go to do their Easter duty you know, to have to receive communion once a year. I always consider I'm not rigid about it, but I basically think that I should take every illegal drug at least once a year. But I'm not advocating that for you. Uh, I do want to alert you, I'm sure you know this anyway, to the, the, this terrible situation that the government, I mean the government, the American government, the politician in Washington, who can't balance the budget, who can't uh, clean the air, who have, uh, I mean, something I think almost all Americans and most Europeans go to the same conclusion. Uh, it's, it's the era of post-politics. Is there anyone with more than two fingers of forehead left that thinks you can look to Washington or to Moscow or to uh, Beijing for someone to solve your problems? So this notion of thinking for yourself and, and uh, making up your own mind is uh, becoming, I think, the most powerful uh, political movement in, uh, in the world. Uh, 
I mentioned it, that during a war, you're not going to be told the truth. You're not going to be given scientific facts about drugs. Uh, it's terrible when you lie to people, when you lie to people and they know that uh, they find it out. I'm sure many of you have seen in the newspapers these enormous full-page ads saying shows it shows a frying pan with an egg in it. And it says, this is your brain under drugs. Well, that, when I first came out, and it's in, uh, it's in uh, TV too, guy comes on and said, all right, stupid. I'm going to say it for the last time. This plate is, that, that is your brain under, uh, under, uh, that is your brain under drugs. About a week or two after that campaign started, the counterculture, the underground, which always moves through Russia and moves the, around the world, laughing at and making fun of authoritarian police control. The underground struck once again. I got several fax copies, and I was told by friends in colleges that appeared in dormitories and fraternities party. The answer, it showed, showed a, a plate. And on the plate was a fried egg, two pieces of bacon, <laughs> and a wedge of toast. And it said, this is your brain with bacon and toast. <laughs> now, we can laugh about that because we're very sophisticated as uh, South Floridans, but uh, how about the kids? You know that there are hundreds of cases of little kids who would come into the uh, kitchen in the morning and look at Ma at the stove and scream. You'd have to be given psychotherapy because Mom was burning brains. Not to mention it really pissed off the poultry industry. <laughs> so my feeling is, is that if we want real-life role models that set the proper example, we can't have a two-way strip. The only way we in America are going to be able to purge ourselves of this poison that leads many on a one-way trip to Palookaville is by setting the example. And whether that means tougher sentencing, whether that means the military interdicting drugs at the border, whether that means a real all-out war, not just a rhetorical one, I'm one that says we need to do everything and anything to give it a chance because I don't want that 20% enslaved. It's America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. We need to do everything to maintain that freedom and that liberty. Thank you. But at the very end, you can always count on Curtis. You know it. He came through. He gave us the message. He says he doesn't care whether they're going to have to have stiffer sentencing for you or the military at the border or turn this country into a police state or a, as a chief police Gates, nut, nutcase Gates, chief police of L.A. said, shoot casual pot smokers. Curtis is right now. He doesn't care what it has to do to stop the 80% of us who can manage our minds and our brains. He is going to make us force of arms and guns and prisons to uh, make decisions for our private life. Curtis, I got news for you. He ain't going to do it. Okay?
was sent to prison for about four and a half years during the Nixon administration for actually possession of a half ounce of marijuana, but you know what they put me in prison for, because I stood up in public and said, nutcakes, fruitcakes like Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Reagan, uh, Nixon, uh, uh, Sununu, Bush, Quail, <laughs> are not going to tell me how to run my private life. Now, believe me, there is a problem of addiction. It is true there are about, oh, maybe 20%, maybe even more than 20% of the people in our society who cannot manage their lives without uh, falling into some addiction. Uh, of course, Curtis, you know that nobody gets addicted to marijuana. You know that. You know that. The hard-nosed, the hard-nosed people about drugs, 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 crack, 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 cocaine, crack, crack, crack. Came to marijuana, yeah, oh yeah well, uh, it's a gateway drug or... Uh, <laughs> you know why they don't want us to smoke marijuana? Because they don't want us to do anything that get, gets, allows us to escape uh, their mind control and let us escape the TV. You look at that... You look at that boob tube TV and Bush persuades you that the greatest the problem America's facing is someone named Willie Horton. <laughs> Light up a marijuana joint and look at it and you'll laugh your head off. Uh, we are going to legalize marijuana and we're going to legalize the other drugs. And, uh, Curtis, I don't agree with you. Uh, after alcohol prohibition, there was not a big increase in alcohol use. Matter of fact, what prohibition is, any time the government criminalizes a natural act that human beings are going to do anyway, they try to ban homosexuality. In the state of Georgia, they ban uh, oral copulation. Good luck. Uh, uh, birth control. Uh, uh, sexually offensive records, you know, you, you, abortion. Uh, you cannot pass laws uh, for any people from doing with their bodies what they fucking want to do. <laughs> and the terrible thing is once you do criminalize a natural human behavior that doesn't hurt anybody else, then the government loses control over it. So, yeah, you know, well, number one, I find it hard to get marijuana. <laughs> I mean, they've done such a good job. Hey, you, you can walk out 8th Street Corner and you get $10 worth of crack. But you get marijuana, it's like $300, $400 an ounce. When we legalize drugs, we're going to save... I know, what is it, $200 billion a year that's the traffic alone? So that, that amount of money will go to where it should go, to the, the good, hard-working dirt farmers of marijuana, of uh, Mendocino who uh, raise marijuana. And, uh, there'll, be, uh, there'll be government warnings and the government purities, and uh, there'll be education uh, to, to teach you how not to abuse these uh, substances. The problem is that when you criminalize it, you make it tempting and you make it uh, uh, something that people orgy on and so forth. Uh, education and... Uh, 
treatment for those. There are going to be people that are going to screw up, no question of it. Alcohol, no question of it. But the same thing is true, uh, interestingly enough, the number one addiction in America is not the addiction of nicotine. And the number one addiction, not only uh, big in numbers, it's also big in the amount of money, medical treatments needed. It's big to look at. I'm talking about food addiction. Now, there are about 20% of the American people who are as addicted to food as uh, cocaine addicts are to cocaine. You've seen that. I don't see any in this room. But you've seen people that just, just, they get a, a some sort of orgastic thrill out of filling their, their bodies with food. And this is bad for the health. I mean, it should be a label on the package. Uh, I don't think we should pass a law putting fat people in jail. And even though they, they raise the health costs, I think, uh, I don't, it's their business. In the case of kids, absolutely, we've got to go all out and make, but that's, you know, how you, I'm a parent of a 17-year-old kid, and I've been through the last three years, and any parent knows, and any kid would agree, that these days, with so much weirdness and disinformation and government propaganda, uh, you know, kids don't know what to do. A parent these days has got to be a combination of, a, of a, an FBI agent, have you been, let me see your eyes, son, uh, or a, a drug counselor or a family counselor. It's hard to be a parent. And to keep kids away from drugs is the obvious common sense. Uh, you get to talk to them, eye to eye, be tough when necessary. We are not going to solve the problems of the inner city or of the addictions of 10% or 15 or 20% of, of our population by turning America into a police state. My, my final message is, as I said in the beginning, just say no, K-N-O-W. Think for yourself. Power elite clearly understood that the true danger to their status quo was the change in consciousness that psychedelics and cannabis were bringing to the young people. It was because of that issue that President Nixon once described Timothy Leary as the most dangerous man in America. But the beautiful thing about Dr. Leary is that right up to the end, with the full force of the American government on his neck, he never gave up. They never broke his spirit. And just to complete the record, that 17-year-old son that Dr. Leary just mentioned is Zach Leary, and I'm very pleased to say that he has been a friend of the salon for a long time. Also, I want to thank Dennis Berry and the Leary Estate for the use of Dr. Leary's talks and for the financial support that they have provided to us as well. So, now where are we? Well, briefly, I've tried to give you a little of the flavor of the 60s, not the bubbly music of the Beatles, but rather a feeling of what it felt like at the time. Nobody that I knew back then ever thought that one day people would be romanticizing about the 60s. So what about today? Well, there doesn't seem to be a very visible anti-war movement, and for the most part, the spirit of the Occupy movement has been internalized by many people in all kinds of different organizations. And while there's no direct connection between Black Lives Matter and the Occupy movement, there's no question in my mind, but that the deep spirit of those two movements has a lot in common. 
And if I was a black fellow saloner, I hoped that I would become actively engaged with Black Lives Matter. They may experience a few growing pains from time to time, but hey, that's because they're growing. But I'm not black, and I'm getting old, and before that I was holding down a job and supporting a family, and before that I was in the military service, and before that I was in school. I've had my excuses, and uh, yes, I've also been actively engaged in several causes, but on more than one occasion I've used one of those excuses to stay out of the fray. Unfortunately, the point that we are at in time right now may be the determining moment for the direction that our coming age is going to take. What I'm talking about is the Internet and the serious obligation that you and I have to future generations to ensure that the net remains free and open, without government censorship and control. There is one major, as in unbelievably major, thing that we have going for us today that Leary and Hoffman and Hendricks and Morrison and all the rest of us in the 60s didn't have, and that is the ability to communicate directly with anyone, anywhere, anytime, using the Internet. You know, it's so easy to take the net for granted these days, and, uh, well, that was one of our dreams back in the 80s and 90s when we were creating the PC and Internet revolutions. Our dream was that the computer and the Internet would become so embedded into our societies that they would become almost invisible, like electricity and the telephone has become to people in the more affluent nations. Unfortunately, if uh, something is invisible, it's much harder to alert the people to the fact that how tightly controlled their use of this technology is about to become, unless we all do something about it. So let me get to the heart of today's podcast. The purpose of these programs is to help bring an end to the war on drugs by educating as many people as possible about the true nature of cannabis and the psychedelic medicines. Knowledge, passing the word around, is what you and I are all about. I don't see anyone here trying to convince others to use this or that substance. What I see is a lot of information about banned psychoactive substances reaching a lot of people around the world who wouldn't have had access to it without the Internet. Now, some of us began using the Internet before the web was invented. Ask some of the old hands about Gopher and Usenet and some of the old boards where we hung out before the web was overlaid on top of the Internet. But the web is what most of us see and use today. However, if you think of the Internet as a big ball of yarn, then the very top layer is all that the search engines have indexed. The whole ball of yarn is the Internet, and the top 5% of the outer surface is the web. What is below that is called the deep web. And inside the deep web, if you know what you're looking for, is the dark web. And, by the way, (laughs) these are my definitions. There are hundreds of other opinions about what to call the deep dark web, uh, just as there are hundreds of opinions about the deep dark 60s. Well, somewhere in the dark web, a few years ago, there lived a website that was for a while setting a new standard for quality and customer satisfaction in the sale and purchase of items that the leaders of our various governments have prohibited for sale so as to uh, protect the investments of the corporations that they represent. That website, of course, was Silk Road. And unless you are one of the very few who have closely followed and understood what is going on with that case and what is at stake for you and me, well, then I cannot urge you strongly enough to watch Deep Web the Movie. After I play the soundtrack of a trailer for that movie, 
I'll be back to do my best to explain why this story and how you react to it is directly connected to the activism that began in the 60s and has carried through right up to where we are today in deep, dark, fascist America. But first, here's the soundtrack from DeepWebTheMovie.com. The Deep Web is vast, thousands of times larger than the visible surface web. It's like looking under the hood of the Internet. It would not remain underground for long. The Silk Road was a new relationship between individuals where the government couldn't control what people bought and sold. The Silk Road administrator, known only as Dread Pirate Roberts, or DPR, was generally assumed to be the creator and owner of the site. Informants were activated. The site was crawling with law enforcement posing as vendors and buyers. Authorities say they have their guy. 29-year-old Ross William Ulbricht. I want to have had a substantial positive impact on the future of humanity. DPR took the risk. He was willing to do the things that most weren't willing to do. This was a guy who saw himself as the leader of a movement. It's not about selling drugs as much as it is to make a political statement. American law enforcement hacked the server. They didn't have a warrant. They completely got away with it. This was playing fast and loose with the truth. This peaceful guy, certainly not the guy that I'm reading about. Were there other people using the DPR account? At least two other people, if not three. Or was there some other truth? It's a theory I'd never heard before. Instead of Ross being Dread Pirate Roberts, the real Dread Pirate Roberts framed him. I'm not buying drugs on the network. Why do I care? Can the government use hacking techniques to dig up evidence on a suspect? We are making the tools to take back our sovereignty. You can take down the man, but you can't take down the idea. Now, I'll come back to this in a moment, but there are two main points here that you need to focus on. The first is that Dread Pirate Roberts was a folk hero with a very large number of mainly youthful followers. The second is that the government, without any legality on their side, put on a black hat and hacked into the private and highly encrypted servers to get their information. These are two very important points. Now, in introducing the clip that we just listened to, I said, in my opinion, we are now living in a deep, dark fascist police state. As you know, there are many definitions of fascism, so I'll leave it to you to find the one that most suits you, but after you read it, think about these quotes. Fascism feeds on a stew of nationalism, militarism, and state power, and an enemy, real or imagined, is needed in order to whip the people into a patriotic frenzy. For the final hammer of fascism to fall, it will require the most crucial ingredient, the majority of the people will have to agree that it's not only expedient but necessary. In times of crisis, expediency is upheld as the central principle. That is, in order to keep us safe and secure, the government must militarize the police, strip us of our basic constitutional rights, and criminalize virtually every form of behavior. And I continue now quoting from various sources. Not only does fear grease the wheels of the transition to fascism by creating fearful, controlled, pacified, cowed citizens, but it also embeds itself in our very DNA, 
so that we pass on our fear and compliance to our offspring. It's called epigenetic inheritance, the transmission through DNA of traumatic experiences. The parallels to modern America and 20th century fascism are impossible to ignore. Every industry is regulated. Every profession is classified and organized. Every good or service is taxed. Endless debt accumulation is preserved. Immense doesn't begin to describe the bureaucracy. Military preparedness never stops. And war with some evil foreign foe remains a daily prospect. The parallels to modern America are impossible to ignore. America has already entered a new phase, one in which children are arrested in schools, military veterans are forcibly detained by the government agents because of the content of their Facebook posts, and law-abiding Americans are having their movements tracked, their financial transactions documented, and their communications monitored. These threats are not to be underestimated. End of quote. So now we come to the persecution of Ross Ulbrich by the U.S. government. And I'm not using the word persecution lightly. As you know, I began practicing law in Houston, Texas in 1972. And while I'm no expert, I do know that any so-called trial in which the very laws that are alleged to have been broken are kept secret from the defendant, who in turn is not even allowed to introduce any evidence in his defense. It was a star chamber, nothing less. And the judge, jury, and prosecution in the Silk Road case are nothing short of traitors. That is, if you still think there is such an entity as the United States of America that is a nation of laws under a very old constitution. However, unless you've been living in a cave for the past two decades, you are well aware that the U.S. Constitution has been essentially nullified by the ruling elite. Today, if some nameless, faceless bureaucrat wants to take you out, there's no legal recourse left available to you. Already, native-born American citizens are being murdered by drones on the order of the serial killer in the White House. We are now living in a nation that is essentially under military rule. And don't be surprised when the day comes that Obama, or whomever follows in his sorry tracks, begins launching his drone strikes here in the States, probably on the Mexican border first, but... Eventually, I expect to see in-country drone strikes being accepted as a matter of course by a nation of fearful sheep. So, is there anything that you can do about it? Well, doing something within our current system is almost hopeless, but like the good Dr. Leary, we should never give up hope. So, if you're willing to do a little something to fight the powers that are trying to seal you off from the information that uh, you want on the Internet... And if you aren't part of Anonymous, then the best thing that I can see for you to do is to go to www.freeross.org and become better informed about what went down in the Silk Road trial. In brief, here's part of it. Approximately two months after Ross was convicted, it was revealed that two federal agents at the Department of Homeland Security Baltimore office had been under investigation for nine months for stealing and extorting funds from Silk Road. Among other crimes, that is. One of them, DEA agent Carl Mark Force, was the lead undercover agent in Maryland and at the core of the Silk Road investigation. He and Secret Service agent Sean Bridges have now pleaded guilty to a massive corruption scheme. These agents are computer experts and had high-level access to administrative functions in Silk Road. They had the power to change aspects of the site, 
gain access to administrator platforms and passwords, to change PIN numbers and to commandeer accounts, including that of Dread Pirate Roberts. They also had the means to manipulate logs, chats, private messages, keys, posts, account information, and bank accounts. And yet, Manhattan federal judge Kathleen Forrest, in her infinite wisdom, did not allow this or any exculpatory evidence to be submitted in Ross's defense. She not only silenced him, this, in my opinion, truly horrible human being, sentenced Ross Ulbricht to two life sentences without parole and an additional 40 years beyond that. In other words, the U.S. government has effectively ended the life of this youthful folk hero just as effectively as it ended the lives of Morrison, Hendricks, and Bob Marley, just to name a few. On top of that, what is becoming clear now that the white hat hackers have been digging into this case is that we have discovered that the U.S. government, contrary to popular belief, has now successfully broken the encryption schemes that are used on the Internet. So until our hacker friends come up with a new way to encrypt our private work, there is not a single keystroke or online conversation, whether text or audio, that the government goons are not able to listen in on. The right of privacy has now been completely compromised. So what are you going to do about it? Just sit there and take it, or are you going to stand up and be counted? There are many ways that we can voice our concern about these issues, and I'm not going to suggest that one is any better than another. For me, the place that I'm starting is at the freeross.org website and on the deepwebthemovie.com website. On those two sites, you'll find a number of actions that you can take. For me, uh, watching the movie Deep Web is a very important first step. To be sure, it'll give you some ideas about ways in which you can lend your voice to this issue. Freeing Ross Ulbrich is not only a focal point for ending the insanity of the war on drugs, it's also a very necessary step in keeping the Internet free for you and me to use as we see fit. Every day that we delay in moving this story onto the front pages of the mainstream press is another day for the government goons to find new ways to shut down any conversations that you are having and which may in some way disturb the current status quo, which is basically a militaristic fascism. Here in California now, I can install an app on my iPhone that will make a FaceTime connection to a doctor, who in turn will give me a recommendation to use medical marijuana. And within less than 30 minutes, I'll have a smiling delivery person at my door with a bag of pot. And it's all legal. Yet, Ross Ulbrich has been sentenced to spend the rest of his life in a cage for doing what is essentially the same thing. It's very clear what's going on here. What I hope also is clear to you right now is that today, right now today, you need to become involved in the struggle to free Ross Ulbrich and to let the government know that you're not going to stand for their continuing intrusions into your private business. It's time to stand up and be counted while you still can. Well, if you're still with me, that gives me a lot of hope because, well, it means that at the very least you'll be watching the movie Deep Web and hopefully passing a copy of it around at work or you can discuss it during your breaks and at lunchtime. This is an issue that needs constant and widespread attention and it is an issue that can be traced directly back to the government's attempt to suppress students stretching back to the 60s and before. The spirit of the 60s and the spirit of the Occupy movement is very much alive and well yet today. And I'm glad that you've joined us in our struggle to keep the net free. I'm going to leave you now with a song by one of my Occupy heroes, a young man from Hawaii named Makana. 
And as you listen to the words of his anthem, why don't you begin thinking about the many ways that you are equipped and in position to throw a monkey wrench into the gears of the great fascist machine that has taken over our lives. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my anonymous friends. Hey, come here and gather around the stage. The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty the bureaucrats could fall And until they are purged we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the rights Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability they own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped, we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. You enforce your monopolies with guns while sacrificing our daughters and sons. But certain things belong to everyone. Your fevery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words to leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets we occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few
You can't divide us into sides And from our gaze you cannot hide Denial serves to amplify And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the others in the Bidding of the many, not the few. We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the others in the view till you do. The bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many. You are the few The message is very simple Think for yourself and question authority To the future without fear without fear.